Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew 7, verse 12, and it reads, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord withers. All right. Thank you, Keely. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Joel, everybody else. Um, Kiddos, we have Elevate today, and that's it? Okay. So Elevate today, which is kindergarten, first, in second grade. I should know this. Uh, So if you want to head out, you can. Uh, Everybody else, we're going to stick around in here. And uh, I am, uh, I want to express uh, my gratitude for Joel. First of all, men's stuff on Friday morning. This is going to be more of an ongoing thing. Uh, We've done men's things where we've done like four weeks at a time. So we're going to try just ongoing men's Bible study. It's at 6 a.m. Um, I don't know, get over it. <laughs> I say that in love. Uh, we may, we may be able to talk that into 6.30, but 6 a.m. here at the church, I know you don't have anything scheduled then. Um, so we're going to do that, and uh, we're going to go through this semester, we're going to go through 1 Samuel. Lots of fun. A uh, couple kings involved, prophet. Some bizarre things, uh, and so we're going to spend our time going through that um, this semester, and it's going to be every other Friday on Friday mornings. So there's that, all right? Pause, put that in its own category. Next, I want to thank Joel for, uh, for filling in for three weeks. Three weeks is hard, right? One week is all right. You're like, i got a whole lot of material built up. I can do a week of preaching. Two weeks, you're like, all right, I can last into two weeks. I can, I, I've got enough momentum. I can get two weeks. Three weeks is when you start to question your life choices. And uh, I gave Joel a little bit of warning, but I didn't give him the full warning of what that uh, would look like. And I remember the first two weeks, he's like, Trey, I'm gunning for your job. And then the last week, he's like, I don't know if I believe in God anymore. And, um, so I was like, all right, it worked. It worked. But seriously, Joel, thank you for leading us through that, um, through uh, Colossians and taking our time to see King Jesus This week, we're going to get back into the Sermon on the Mount uh, and uh, keep going with Sermon on the Mount. That'll take us through Easter, uh, and and so we're going to finish up in chapter 7. My family growing up, uh, we were were the Griswolds, Uh, like without, if you don't know that, this is not the time um, to break that out for you, who the Griswolds were. Uh, Every year, we would take a summer vacation, and usually would find ourselves somehow in trouble, um, sometimes with other people, sometimes with the law. It just varied. It was always exciting. Um, this one summer, we took a trip. We, we, we drove an RV across the country, like destination Hollywood. We stopped and we went, like we actually drove the RV down Hollywood Boulevard. Um, <laughs> It was the most amazing thing. I wish, my junior high years, I wish I could have appreciated exactly what my parents were doing to me 
as a junior high kid riding down Hollywood Boulevard in an RV. Uh, anyway, um, we went through everything. We saw the Rocky Mountains. We went uh, like a, this huge circle and saw so much of the western part of the United States, the parts that there are to see. Uh, and then, uh, and one of the places that we went and saw was the Grand Canyon. And I remember we would stay at campgrounds uh, every night, and the night before we were going to go see the Grand Canyon, we stayed at this campground. We were out with doing a, a fire, and there was a family next to us, and they were having a fire. And uh, the dad, they had just gotten back from the Grand Canyon that day. And the dad, so we were like, how was it? And, and this was his response. He's like, eh, it's a big hole in the ground. Now, how many of you have seen the Grand Canyon? And, and walked along the edge and maybe even gone out on the overlook, right? So it's not it's not, not true. It is a very big hole in the ground. But that is a woefully inadequate summary of the Grand Canyon. When you see the majesty and the, like you feel small. You feel small to stand in the presence of Grand It's way more than just a big hole in the ground. What Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 7, many commentators believe that Jesus, or at least Matthew placing this part of Jesus' teaching here, is giving the summary of kind of what we've just walked through in the last two and a half chapters. This is kind of wrapping it all up. The ethic of the Christian life in Matthew 7, 12. From here, there's going to be some other warnings, there's going to be some other teachings that Matthew puts in there, but they don't have quite the flow that we've seen from Matthew 5 and 6 and early in chapter 7. They're kind of other teachings that are true, they're very true, but they don't, they don't flow like these, other, like these other chapters did. And Jesus gives this statement, Matthew 7, 12, what we call, what, what do we call this? The golden rule. This is the ethic this is the primary ethic of the Jewish life. In fact, so much uh, Jewish life. Well, yes, and the Christian life. Um, in fact, so much so uh, that Jesus tells us this is all the law and the prophets. Do unto others that they may, uh, uh, how you would want them to do to you. And just as he has given a much more in-depth explanation of the law and the prophets throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this is way more than just a nice, neat summary of, yeah, just do that, all right? There's way more uh, that we may not realize. So Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the ethic of the way that Jesus has the, the way that we have been designed and created. Uh, here again, what Jesus has uncovered as he's gone throughout the Sermon on the Mount is kind of how we have looked at the law, how, what the, the common way of interpreting uh, the law. Uh, and really, what was the common way of interpreting the law was do unto others, uh, was, it was more bent on what others thought of what you were doing. It was more set up, the way we have interpreted the law, it was more set on do unto others so that they will think you are righteous and obedient. Right? Can we be a little honest with that? Yes? Maybe? A little bit? Okay. Um, they were geared toward comparisonitis in public opinion. It was not 
geared toward actually giving yourself away to other people. Now, there are two ways that teachers of the law, or really anybody, there are two ways that we can kind of approach the law where we manipulate the law to be more in our favor. One way is actually to expand the law. Technicalities. Quid pro quo, right? Now, I know that I might be doing something wrong. But technically, at least I'm not as bad as what they are doing wrong. Right? I, granted, I know that this, and we kind of get more detailed about the law. We expand it. We take on a little more legalism that this outweighs this. This is exactly what... uh, this is exactly what the, the Good Samaritan, this is exactly what they're pointing out in the Good Samaritan. When the priest and the Levi come down the mountain, technically they are ceremonially clean, and it's important to stay ceremonially clean. And so to stay ceremonially clean, you don't touch blood. You don't deal with the guy that's beaten on the side of the road. So technically, technically, that is a way that we expand the law. Anybody recognize like, how they do that in their own life? Right? Where we, we expound the law and, and kind of dip and bob and weave over here and then, see, I'm, I'm all right here. Now you, on the other hand. So, we can do that. We minimize the sins that don't affect us as much and we maximize the sins that other people do. And we're good at that. Now, the other side... The other side of the law is when we kind of take it and we just kind of boil it all down to a really simplistic platitude that doesn't have a whole lot of meaning to it, but it sounds good, and really, again, we kind of set it up to where it's beneficial for us, and maybe deceptively uh, devious toward other people, right? I'm sure you guys are at a loss to think of simple platitudes that we have in our day, um, but Some of them, one of them, we just love. We just love people. That's really, that's what we do. We just love. You people don't love. But I. I love. Right? Uh, It was 15, it was probably 15 years ago. um, There was a march downtown on the arch grounds, and it was actually like a pro-Nazi march. Um which was interesting, uh, and the Post-Dispatch had a picture of the march, and I, I just thought this was the, the, uh, the, the epitome of irony. They have a picture of a guy protesting a Nazi march with a coexist sign. Do you, I mean, listen, I'm, like, to compel somebody, I, I get that, but it's hard to protest with a coexist sign. Do you, I mean, you get the irony there? Hey, coexist! Well, you can't say that in that way. Um, hear me. I think Nazism should be condemned. Absolutely. This is not me saying that. Don't you dare go out and tweet. All right. But the reality is, when we leave things undefined, 
we always have to make qualifications. We love people who love people, right? There's a sign down the road. We welcome all who welcome all. That's qualified. Um, It sounds good, but what does it mean? Not to mention that I've seen some pretty hateful things said, followed by, we just need to love people, right? Like only idiots would call people names. Sink in. Um, Now, to be fair, some of the harshest and meanest people I know hold to what we would call the doctrines of grace. So let's not just apply this one way. All right? We believe in grace. That means this, 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 and this. Actually, I went two over five. (laughs) This, 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 and this. All right. Uh, And if you don't believe in grace like I do, you don't get any. Uh, We are paradoxes of hypocrisy. Uh, And Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he is not going to let us get away with that. He's not going to let us get away with either ways of trying to manipulate the law into our favor. He confronts both the legalist and the liberal. And it's frustrating. And freeing. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked by a lawyer what the greatest commandment is. In Luke chapter 10, he's asked by a teacher of the law, what must a man do to be saved? And he gives the same answer in both of it. To fulfill all the law and the prophets is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what, class? Love your neighbors yourself. Just do that. So we're like, all right. All right, I think I can do that. I can love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. What I need to do is I need a cabin out in the middle of nowhere. I need no competing ideologies. I need no threats to my children. I need no different political viewpoints than mine. I'm going to get a cabin out in the middle of nowhere. I'm never going to drive Highway 40. And then if I do that, then I will be able to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength as long as I don't have to love people. Dang it! All right. I get it now. Or the other side. I can love people as long as there's no, like, superior moral code here that that somehow we have to submit to, and I can actually love, well, like people as long as they generally agree with me, leave me alone, don't ever ask me to believe or do anything that I don't want to, and I won't ask them to do anything that I don't want to, and as long as we can really kind of be indifferent about everybody, I find it very easy to love them. (laughs) Do you see how these fall apart? Do you see how Jesus is going to confront both of these sides? He's not going to let us get away with those. And he spends the previous two chapters calling us out on all of these things. We're called to love God with our whole being, which we don't do well, to submit to him, to trust that the way he designed the world and me to be in it is good and right and holy. And we're called to obedience. And then we're also called to love others that don't do it like we do. uh, And we're called to love them in a way that presents the beauty of God and his mercy and his holiness, but is not like us sitting in the place of, of judging their eternal soul or trying to make ourselves look better, but nor is it passivity and lowering the necessity of holiness. And this attempt to do any of these things, here's the great news, leads us to our continual need to say, I can't do this. It's impossible. I need a savior. Ah, good news. Jesus says, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. 
This means we have to actually consider how we want to be treated. What do we really want? How do we treat ourselves? Do we feed ourselves? Do we take care of ourselves? Do we provide rest? Now, in our day, this is called self-care. Some of you are like, yeah, and some of you are like, ugh. Let me make a distinguishing factor, right? I think self-care is incredibly important, and I think this is built into love your neighbor as you love yourself. However, we do need to make a distinguishing factor between self-care and self-indulgence. They are different. Self-care is important. It's realizing our limitations. It's actually, self-care is actually recognizing over and over that we can't do everything, that we need Jesus, how much we need Jesus, how much we try to accomplish without Jesus. It's taking time actually to be filled with the presence of God, to be reminded of his love for us. It's slowing down to be able to see and know that I am an image bearer, that I am and I have been forgiven in Jesus and I can walk in that. It brings about self-awareness, taking time to see what I'm doing that is good for my mind and my soul and my body that is redemptive and actually helping me become more like Jesus and what I am doing to myself that's destructive and hurtful. Self-indulgence is more like self-worship. Now, Self-indulgence can also flow out of self-loathing. And I want to talk here just a minute about repentance and not confusing repentance with self-loathing. Okay? We talk often about repenting of sins. Sometimes we don't, like, help make that distinguishing factor. We are sinful and rebellious people. Repentance is owning what we do. Self-loathing is toxic. It's about toxic shame, and it's about us punishing ourselves. It's about self-harm, self-hatred, disassociation, where you feel like the only way you can be accepted is to be something else or someone else or to despise yourself enough that maybe somebody will care. You despise not your sin, but your soul in self-loathing. Repentance acknowledges that you are sinful, but you're not worthless. You are an image bearer of God. You are created in his image. Even when you are sinful, you are still created in his image. It's seeing and believing and trusting that you have value and worth because God has created you, because Christ died for you. That you don't have to bear the punishment for your sin, that Christ bore that. that you are loved. And yes, absolutely, this love changes you. It helps you to become more like Jesus, the one in whose image you were made and who you are being transformed to look more and more like. And when we talk about loving God and loving one another, the ultimate goal of love is not self-indulgence. It's actually being conformed to the image of Jesus to move us more and more to becoming like him. And how did Jesus love us? We just celebrated this. The incarnation. He came and dwelt among us. He made himself like one of us. He listened. He sees. He knows. 
He knows what it's like to be abandoned and betrayed and to hurt and have sorrow. He knows what it's like to not feel at home in this world. He is patient. He offers us grace. And he doesn't call us to personal happiness, but he does call us to good. He calls us to trust him and follow him. And the ultimate hope of the gospel, this is, what we, this is the ultimate hope of the gospel, that we stand before Jesus fully known, fully exposed, but not rejected. Actually, the offer of acceptance and forgiveness without having to hide anything. And some of us will say, can it be? And some of us will say, nope, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take it on. When we are met and known and loved, and love is not enabling, love is, is confronting and freeing, it changes you. Jesus says over and over again in different ways, if this is what you have received, if you've received forgiveness, then this is what you begin to demonstrate. This is what begins to take root in you. And this is critical. This is critical. Okay, hear me. Because we do this in, again, legalist ways and liberal ways. This is critical. In Christ, you do not change in order to be accepted. In Christ, that's the way of this world. All right? In Christ, we change because we have been loved and accepted. And that's huge. That's all the difference in the world. Now, here, we live in a day that we present, the, we present the golden rule as just the natural way, right? Just be a good human. Just be a good human. If that's your motto, you might not want to study history. Uh, we fail in the West to see how influenced we are by Christianity. Some of it's good, I think. But this idea of that, that do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the idea that that's just natural, that that's humanity, that's not true. That's Christianity with a heavy influence on the way that we see the world. Um, and in our world, we kind of want the claims of a kingdom ethic, because it sure sounds good, but we don't want the king. The way of the world uh, has always been, I'm going to bring up a, a Latin term that we talked about before, lex talionis. Anybody remember what that means? The law of retribution. Retaliation. The way of the world has not been doing to others you would have them doing to you, but doing to others as they did to you. And sometimes preemptively, doing to others as they may probably will do to you. Beat them to the punch. Um, I'm going to use two different perspectives from atheists, actually, to kind of land the plane here. One's going to be a little bit longer. Um, one of these men will claim purely scientific means uh, of atheism. Uh, the other is a philosopher, but I, both think, I think they both have valuable things for us to hear. The first is a guy that I really don't know anything about, uh, but he was kind of recycling some stuff from the new atheism in the last 20 to 30 years, uh, and he had a TED Talk making its way around the internet this week that I thought was, was interesting. Yuval Harari. He is a professor, public intellectual. He's chief advisor to Klaus Schwab, uh, who is the founder and chairman of the World Economic Forum. If you expect me to look up what the World Economic Forum does, I didn't. I'm assuming if it's a world ec economy, he's probably fairly important, all right? Um, 
Yuval has a TED Talk. I think it's a couple years old. But it, again, it was circling around uh, the internet this week, talking about the foolishness of human rights. This is what he says. Human rights, just like heaven, just like God, is a fictional story that we have invented. And he goes on. Take a human being and cut them open. Don't do that. This is an illustration. <laughs> You'll find their blood, their heart, their lungs, their kidneys, you will not find any rights. The only place you find human rights is in the fictional story that humans have invented. Nietzsche suggested that humans must be like animals, cruel, but with measured bits of compassion. Uh, Nietzsche suggested that the only reason compassion would make any moral sense is because of religion. Otherwise, compassion is a weakness. Here's the thing, I agree with him. I agree with him. And here's what I mean by this. These, both of these men are providing some very helpful, clarifying thoughts. Compassion and human rights and human dignity, these are religious terms. I absolutely, thousand percent agree with them. These are religious terms. These do not flow out of science. They flow out of story. They flow out of religion. Dignity is a religious term. That's our term. You don't get to borrow it. I'm happy that they do. Right? But it's not merely any religion. All right? This was not the way of the ancient world in general. There was no such thing as atheists in the ancient world. But even still, this was not necessarily a popular thought outside of Israel. Something helpful to keep in mind, if, we, if you believe in a God, if you believe in a superior being, name it whether we ever have thought through that, if, it, if we believe that there's a God over the universe, um, a supreme ruler or rulers over the universe, it is not a given that this God has to be good. That's a Western presumption, that there's a good God. That's not a given. That's not an ancient view. The ancient world had lots of gods that they came up with. They weren't good. They were vengeful. They were tyrannical. The best ones were pretty indifferent to humanity. And the idea of sin was try not to make them mad. That's what humanity came up with. Um, it's so that is possible. It's not required that the God who created all things did so out of his good pleasure. It's not required that God made a covenant with people. It's very possible that some God somewhere would look at mankind as a worm and not a little lower than the heavenly beings crowned with glory and honor, as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 8. However, the religion of Christianity, the story of Jesus, who summarizes all the Hebrew law and prophets, is to love one another as I have loved you. How do you want someone that would, uh, how you want somebody to act toward you? do that to them, that's not a given. That's not automatic. We presume it, but it's revealed. Here's another thought from a former atheist. Um, he was a philosopher. I'm going to try to read through this fast, but this is lengthy. Uh, I think he was haunted by the presence of God. Uh, now, he entered eternity in 2008, so I'm going to call him a former atheist. I hope and pray. Uh, you're going to hear hints of this in what I read. I hope and pray that somehow God met him uh, before that time and that somehow 
he joyfully, when he entered eternity, bowed down before the throne with great relief and joy. Though the final determining factor for that is above my pay grade. David Foster Wallace, uh, he was a philosopher, which is different from a scientific atheist. Philosophers actually deal with humans, which is nice. And he wrote uh, an iconic speech that I think is one of the most profound pieces of writing that I've ever heard. It's called This is Water. It's a graduating, he, he gave it to the graduating class of 2005 at Kenyon College. This is a commencement speech. All right, so if you can take yourself back to graduating from college, this is the, the hope that he gave them uh, as uh, these guys began to enter the, quote, real world. Uh, and I'm going to read a long excerpt because I think it's brilliant. We're going to land the plane right after I'm done. Uh, and I think it gives us a very profoundly honest self-critique and self-awareness that I think is super helpful because there's a lot of stuff in our day that is not profoundly honest. And uh, I want you to hear and see the words of Jesus, and I want you to hear hope and mission and worship echoing through what haunted his brain throughout his speech. And you might say, well, how in the world can an atheist lead us to Jesus? Well, first I would say, listen. And second, I would say, all truth is God's truth. Um, and we could be confident in that. God can reveal his truth through anything. Um, and again, it's so hidden in our day. Plus, the other reason I like him is I feel like he's a lot like me. He has to get it really dark before he sees the light. All right? So bear with me. Some of you guys are going to love this. Some of you are going to be like, oh, here we go again. Hang with me, all right? This is his speech. I'm cutting into it a little ways. By way of example... Let's say an average adult day, no, I'm sorry, the plain fact is that you graduating seniors do not yet have any clue of what day in or day out really means. There happens to be a whole large parts of American adult life that nobody talks about in commencement speeches. One such part involves boredom, routine, and petty frustration. The parents and older folks here will know all too well what I'm talking about. By way of example, let's say an average adult day. You get up in the morning, you go to your challenging white-collar college graduate job, you work hard for 8 to 10 hours, and at the end of the day, you're tired and somewhat stressed, and all you want to do is go home and have a good supper, maybe unwind for an hour, then hit the sack early because, of course, you have to get up and do it again the next day. But then you remember that there's no food at home, and you haven't had time to shop this week because you're challenging job. And so now, after work, you have to go get in your car and drive to the supermarket and it's the end of the workday, and traffic is apt to be very bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should. When you finally get there, the supermarket's crowded because, of course, it's the time of day when all the other people with challenging jobs also try to go and squeeze in some grocery shopping. And the store is hideously lit and infused with soul-killing Muzak or corporate pop. And it's pretty much the last place you want to be, but you can't just get in and get out quickly. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit store's confusing aisles to find the stuff that you want, and you have to maneuver your junky cart through all these other tired, hurried people with carts, etc., etc., cutting stuff out because this is a long ceremony. Eventually, you get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes open, even though it's the end of the day rush, so the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating. But you can't take your frustration out on the frantic lady working the register who's overworked at the job whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpasses the imagination of anybody here at a prestigious college. But anyway, you finally get to the checkout line's front, you pay for your food, 
and you get told to have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death. And then you have to take your creepy, creepy, flimsy plastic bags of groceries in your cart with one crazy wheel that pulls maddeningly to the left all the way through the crowded, bumpy, literally parking lot with people who are tending to drive the wrong way in these angled... That is a pandemic thing that I'm sorry I will not stand for. <laughs> all right, sorry. Um, then you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush hour traffic, etc., etc. Everyone here has done this, of course, but it hasn't yet been part of, your, of you graduates' actual life routine day after week after month after year. But it will be. And many more dreary, annoying, seemingly meaningless routines besides. But that's not the point. The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing is going to come in. Now, hear me. When he says choosing, I want you to hear the work of the Holy Spirit prodding you to give you eyes to see, okay? Because the traffic jams and the crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be ticked and miserable every time I have to shop. Because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me. My hungriness, my fatigue, my desire to just get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look at how repulsive most of them are. And how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line. Or how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line. And how deeply and personally unfair this is. Or, of course, if a more socially uh, conscious liberal arts form of my default setting, I can spend time in the end of the day traffic being disgusted about all the huge, stupid, lane-blocking SUVs and Hummers and V12 pickup trucks, this is 2005, burning their wasteful, selfish 40-gallon tanks of gas. And I can dwell on the fact that the patriotic or religious bumper stickers always seem to be on the biggest, most disgustingly selfish vehicles driven by the ugliest... And then people start to clap and laugh at this part of his speech, and he stops them and he says, remember, this is an example of how not to think. <laughs> and I can think about how our children's children will despise us for wasting all the future's fuel and probably screwing up the climate and how spoiled and stupid and selfish and disgusting we all are and how modern consumer society just sucks and so forth and so on. You get the idea. This is a graduation speech, which I love. <laughs> if I choose to think like this in a way, uh, in a store or on the freeway, fine. Lots of us do. Except thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic that it doesn't have to be a choice. It's my default setting. It's the automatic way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowded parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic, unconscious belief that I am the center of the world. And that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. The thing is that, of course, there are, different, there are totally different ways to think about these kinds of situations. 
in this traffic, all these vehicles stopped and idling in my way. It's not impossible that some of these people in SUVs have been in horrible auto, auto accidents in the past and now find driving so terrifying that the therapist has all but ordered them to get a huge heavy SUV so they can feel safe enough to drive. Or that Hummer that just caught me off. Maybe it's being driven by a father whose little child is hurt or sitting sick in the seat next to him and he's trying to get this kid to the hospital and he's in a bigger, more legitimate hurry than I am and it's actually I that am in his way. Or I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket's checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am, and that some of these people probably even have even harder, more tedious, painful lives than I do. Now, here again, this is, I love this. Please don't think I'm giving you moral advice, or that I'm saying you're supposed to think this way, or that anyone expects you to automatically do it, because it's hard, and it takes will and effort. And if you're like me, some days you won't be able to do it or you just won't want to. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at this dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of a husband who's dying of bone cancer. Maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicle department who yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Now, this may not be likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends on what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and that you are operating on your default setting, then like me, you probably won't consider possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. But if you really learn how to pay attention, then you will know that there are other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred. On fire with the same force that made the stars. Love, fellowship, mystical oneness of all things deep down. We would call that the God who holds all things together. That mystical stuff isn't necessarily true. We believe it is. <laughs> but you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. This is, I submit, the freedom of a real education. That hasn't aged well. <laughs> of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's, the, uh, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some set of ethical principles, uh, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and stuff, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you're never going to have enough. You will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness is what we would say, to remember often. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will, never, uh, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. 
Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, they are, uh, it's that they're unconscious, they are. They're our default setting. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating in your default settings. Because the so-called real world of men and women and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny, skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. And this kind of freedom has much to recommend it, but of course, there are all different kinds of freedom. And the most precious to you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of wanting and achieving. The really important freedom, the kind of freedom that involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over again in a myriad, petty, unsexy ways every day. This is real freedom. Friends, I will tell you, that's not atheism. David Foster Wallace acknowledges that. He generalizes religion, but I will tell you, this is pretty distinctly Jesus. It's beautiful. To follow Jesus, to live out the reality of the Sermon on the Mount is to understand and actually believe that this is what Christ has done for you and for me. That he has seen our mundane, purposeless, consumer-driven lives and has interrupted us with hope, with forgiveness, with love and meaning. And then in response, this is how we follow him. We bear his image, not for our own selfish gain, not out of our own insecurity, not for our own personal fulfillment or our immediate desires of the flesh or even for our own happiness, but it is for our good, it is for our holiness, it is for our participation in the spirit, our maturity in Christ, our witness and testimony to the world, and for the evidence of the work in Jesus in us. New life, new freedom, the hope of the resurrection. We see others, we notice them. We love them. We pursue them. Because of Jesus that who, who has done all of this for me, we do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Here's your assignment for this week. Open your eyes. Open your eyes in those moments of absolute frustration. Realize that this is not just the way that humans should be. Our default setting is anger and frustration at why the world is not operating around me. But when Jesus gives us eyes to see, open your eyes. See the world around you. The frustrated checkout clerk. Man, those God-blessed guys that go out and get the carts and have to wheel them back in. Who everybody just, we just ignore and don't care about frustrated parent, the guy flying around you to get, because he's late to work or whatever, 
I guess even the peop- person driving the wrong way in the... Uh, Christ have mercy. My wife has to ride with me. She knows how good I do at driving. And my, this attitude toward people. All right, honey, there's my accountability this week. In your heart, be prayerful, be mindful. Maybe even tell somebody, hey, I appreciate the work that you're doing. It may seem meaningless, but I appreciate it. Thank you for doing what you do. And pray that Jesus would be on display in you, realizing that you are nothing but a cart collector, and Jesus has looked on you with mercy and compassion and finds you beautiful and glorious. And don't withhold that from others. Cool? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. This love is extraordinary. Too often, I think, because of whatever, that I have a whole lot to offer you, which is humorous. Um, Give me eyes to see this week uh, that there is more going on than I could possibly fathom, that you are at work, that uh, boredom and monotony and futility are very real powers of um, that are at work in this world, but that you are greater. You give meaning and purpose and hope and love and resurrection. That people are not just in my way. Even people I disagree with. Even people that I'm angry with. When I was your enemy, you pursued me and loved me and offered grace and forgiveness. May I walk in that. May we walk in that this week. If there's anyone here that has not, that is pushing off grace and forgiveness, either through their religious works or through, uh, or, or through indifference or through bitterness, I pray that you would be at work in them, that there would be a good conversation this week, that you would confront us with that, and that your work would be completed in us and then through us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.